Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And today, I'm joined by film curator and historian Alicia Fletcher and animator and director Luke Chamberlain. When you think about the birthplace of animation techniques, do you think France? Well, because you probably should. From the 1890s, people like Charles-Emile Reynaud were creating the first animation techniques that allowed images to be animated on screen for our delight. The first animation to be drawn on paper was created by Emile Cole in the early 1910s, and he went ahead and invented puppet animation, the technique of pixelation, and, just for good measure, he created the first animated series while he was at it. Now, today, we're going to look at two animated masterpieces that come from French animators following in that innovative tradition, including one by the supposed bad boy of animation, Sylvain Charmet. But before we get into that, Luke, as an animator and filmmaker yourself, can you lead us through what makes animation an art that you're passionate about? Oh, this is this is me blowing my own trumpet here, but <laughs> animation, I think, is the most, the most sophisticated form of art that human being had invented yet. It contained all the other uh, art, for, art form, poetry, writing, theater, uh, painting, sculpting, and name it, I'm forgetting a lot of other arts, but they all put in a bundle in one form of art. It's why animation is so much work. And if yeah. you see, you know, those Marvel movies and you look at the credits at the end, who last about half an hour, you see this army of people and now they're using 3D animation and using, you know, you'll see, I don't know, let's call her Wonder Woman running around at one point. It's probably not Wonder Woman. It's an an image, a 3D image animated with shadow and, and lights and all perfect. It's very complicated to do all that in 3D and it costs zigillions. It's silly. But in France, they have smaller budget and they love drawings and they love comic books. So they don't mind to have the drawings put back on film and move them about. And that is incredible it's happening for two reasons it's cheaper to do 2d animation it's cheaper and they have a small budget there so they can do mm -hmm. five six seven picture a year in animation in france in drawing and then in us none zero it's basically dead. Disney mm -hmm. has completely disbanded their 2D animation department. But I don't know, Luke, I think from what we've seen, there's always a resurgence back into these original arts. And then that's what tends to happen when something makes a huge splash. It wins a bunch of awards. Then it makes a bunch of money. And then they go, oh, we need to go back to this art form and start doing this. It's it's simply because, um, sorry, uh, all the producers and I need producers to get my film done. And and I need to be friendly <laughs> with all of them. But they're looking at the, the spreadsheet and the money they make at the end of the day. And they mix animation with a genre. And it's not a genre. Mm -hmm. A drawing animation is not a genre. It's a medium. 
So I think Guelu del Toro did something, uh, said something like that very recently. But basically, when a film is good, it's good, whatever the medium is. Yeah. Uh, whatever it's science fiction or you know the nobody believe in pirates movie uh and they did the uh, caribbean of uh, pirates of the caribbean and everybody was like why are they doing this it's a pirate movie nobody saw a pirate movie for 30 years and the last ones was cutthroat thailand based on a ride yeah. Island, and it was like a, a disaster and blah 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 and then suddenly it's all and i was expecting to see lots of other pirate movie coming out because the lack of imagination of certain producer, they just say they do what the public wants. It's true, the public wants the same, but different all the time. But drawing animation when the film is beautiful and the story is strong and emotion is on the screen, the film is the film and it doesn't matter if it's 3D or 2D, you're going to go for it. Well, speaking of mediums, uh, you and your own work also elevate other people's artwork and illustrations. Like Seth's Dominion is all about the uh, co the comic book artist and illustrator Seth. Um, and you are animating his work as he talks about his work. So you're also kind of combining these different mediums and things. Is that how you usually think about art? Is this in like combining of mediums and what's the best medium to tell the story? That's a different way of telling stories, I think. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the sets, uh, the, the comic book artist, Canadian comic book artist sets, who's I think one of the, if you do a list of the 10 best comic book artists set is in that list, probably at the very top for me, but for other, maybe number six or seven. But I <laughs> wanted to um, make a film that stand out from uh, a lot of documentary I saw on, on comic book artists that interests me. But uh, other people might find boring. You just see a head of uh, somebody talking, and then you might see somebody make a drawing, and then back to a head, and then we see a drawing, then back to a head. I wanted to make it a little bit more uh, lively and surprising because people want to be surprised. When they go see a film, they say, oh, yeah, we expect this, and something else should be happening. You know, tell me a story, and dazzle me. Everybody will pay money or open their TV. Uh, to watch whatever mini series they're watching, they desperately want to be dazzled. They say, please dazzle me, excite me. So with Sets Dominion, I use all the medium of animation, you know, this 3D animation really well hidden in it. You don't notice 3D. Most of it is in 2D animation and it's classical interview with, with the headshots. And it's all going from one to the other. So I wanted to make the film surprising and exploring the various facets of uh, uh, Seth's work that I admire. I think it's amazing. I really love Seth's work. can tell the love comes through the film. Well, let's get into our first film today because it also contains something Miss Alicia Fletcher loves. So A Cat in Paris or Un Vie de Chat seems to be a movie that is tailor-made for her non-evil cat movie curation list. Coming from the mind of writer mm -hmm. Alain Gagnol as he watched the stray cats slink across the rooftops in Paris from his window, he wondered where they went and came up with something brisk, stylish, and Hitchcockian. Now, despite not having received much of a release in North America, the film was nominated for an Oscar in 2011 alongside DreamWorks's Puss in Boots, of course, but it lost out to Verbinski's Rango, More Animals. Alicia, did this prowl its way into your heart? It did. It's so adult and it's so dark. And I think there's a misconception that when animation comes out in the 21st century, that it's entirely for children. But that's not been true of animation throughout its whole history, going back to the silent era. It's universal. It's for every demographic. And this film 
with, you know, there's a murder. There is, you know, a father who's been horribly murdered. There's a police lieutenant. This is a, a film noir that takes place over one night, which I think makes it so fun. There's an evil nanny who like really <laughs> scared me, actually, which is kind of the most Hitchcockian element of this. Yeah, it's it, there's a little girl, Zoe. Her father has been murdered um, and her mother is a police inspector who is going to track down who did this. And they do know it's a crime boss named Victor Costa. And she has a cat that only she loves. Her mother doesn't appreciate the cat. The nanny certainly doesn't appreciate the cat. And we'll find out soon. And we realize that the cat at night has been kind of um, converting with uh, a burglar, like a cat burglar. Um, And at one point, the burglar gives the cat a bracelet that is then tracked to um, the thieves. And then, you know, it's this crime film where the little girl is kidnapped. The cat... The cat is a lead character, but sort of the observer of the entire film. It's not that the cat's going to save the little girl's life or the cat's going to, you know, bring a heartwarming note to the, a little girl who's lost her father. It's just that the cat is us as an audience watching this all happen. It's remarkable. It's a very unusual, and I want to hear from Luke, a very unusual animation style, at least to me as like an animation nut who goes and sees everything that's animated in a theater. I can't think of another film from this era just 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that looks like a Picasso combined with sort of graphic novels combined with sort of Japanese animation at times. Like, it's it's stunning. I don't think I'm doing it justice. Um, well, but yes, it's a visual medium. That's films. the problem. We're podcasting. <laughs> and it's like, here's some great pictures yeah. of this amazing animation. Please go watch this thing. And I love cat films. I think if you've listened to this podcast throughout the seasons, I every season they allow me to pick one cat, cat double bill. Um, and I do, if you follow me on Letterboxd, I have a list called Litterboxd, which is just pro-cat um, movies, no evil cats allowed. It only has about 20 <laughs> entries right now, which means I'm having, I'm struggling to find enough to have positive animated cat uh, examples uh, in cinema history. Have you ever seen this? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm se- segue here. Have you ever seen the <laughs> the film with uh, Mike, Ma- Michael Sarrazin, yeah. a very French Canadian name? It's in the late 60s. Uh, this guy is afraid of cat. He has a super fear of cat and the house is full of cats. So it's with Gail Unicott. Gail Unicott is the... Te- the Eye the- of the cat. Eyes of the cat. Gail Unicott yeah. is the femme fatale. And he's the guy afraid of cats. This film haunts me for ye- uh, still today. <laughs> this this film really haunts me. It really disturbing. I thought uh, I fell in love with Gail. Oh, Anika, I can't but that's wait another to see story. this. <laughs> okay, I'm on it. I'm, I'm on it. This will be a delicious day. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Back to une vie de chat. This is a style of uh, animation and illustration that is very particular to these two filmmakers. So uh, Jean-Louis Felicoli and Alain Gagnol. Jean-Louis Felicoli does all the storyboarding. Alain Gagnol comes up with the original script ideas. Um, He has a partner who helps him with the dialogue, from my understanding. But the two of them direct the films together. Luke, what did you think of this animation style? Um, It's... It's very, you know, there's a big uh, culture of comic books in France, graphic novel, if you want to call it like that. Uh, and it's, it's, everybody reads comic book. You'll see, it, some people might be shocked, a woman reading comic books in France, in the bus, in the streets. It's everybody does it. So, and they do illustration and they have 
un amour, a love for illustrations. It's, if people know the work of Matteotti, Matteotti is the um, illustrator of, uh, from Italy, but worked mostly in France. He actually directed an animated film, The Island of the Bear, about three years ago. But back mm. to Gianlu Feliccioli, uh, I think has some Italian origin like Matteotti, but I think he is a little bit um, influenced by Matteotti. But Matteotti could be a kind of bastard kid of Picasso, as you can say. Uh, but everything is illustrative and the color is very important. And the beauty of it is that uh, the animation is uh, limited, but you don't notice that the animation is limited. It's really a well choreographed and well crafted film with the lighting. And I'm sure you're, you agree with me. The lighting is very important to keep this uh, uh, Alicia to, to have this feeling of uh, film noir that the French Charoscuro. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, it. yeah. it's really, it's really wonderful. So the cats and the character design are all very angular, as I can describe it. So they look hard, but they're soft in their interpretation and the movement, and and it works. And one is the villain; uh, he's hard. And um, mm -hmm. I did listen to the uh, English version. Um, I did listen to a clip of the uh, how you call that the um, the trailer of the English version to check out the voices because I was curious about Angelica Houston. Yeah, she's yeah. great. Yes, she's great. The the thing is that she was she was against um, our friend Bernadette Lafont. Bernadette Lafont was a, a surprise for me because all the other voices are good actors. They are the uh, the famous in France, but Bernadette Lafont she's uh, kind of a royalty. Bernadette Lafont was in the very first film of François Truffaut, who is called um, Les Miftons. Les Miftons is a twenty minute mm -hmm. short. It's about uh, young preteen kids who follow their one of the kids, uh, his older sister, and his older sister just, uh, you know, just turned eighteen, and she runs around uh, on a bike. She's extremely beautiful. She's very, very young, Bernadette Lafont, and she goes out with a boy, and they go and hide in the in the field, <laughs> and they're being followed by the little kids, and it's Limiton just follow and are curious what those older kids are doing together in the field or in the forest. So it's very cute. It's 20 minutes. It was the first film of François Truffaut. Hmm. Later on, she became famous to play in nearly every uh, filmmaker of the Nouvelle Vague, uh, Bernadette Lafont. And then at one point, she wrote back to François Truffaut and she said, you haven't done a film with me. He said, oh, you're right. So he did Une Belle Fille Comme Moi. Uh, uh, a guy like a girl like me, I don't know the translation in uh, in English, but a belle fille comme moi is about a girl who uses her beauty to get anything she wants, absolutely anything she wants. She's really, really bad. It's a it's a black comedy, very well done. And Bernadette Lafont is she's famous being kind of a you know wicked lady, and it goes well with the uh, film noir. But so when she appeared at the beginning of the film, uh, vie de Chat, and she's the maid, and she's just saying, yes, madame, no, madame. And it was like, what a waste. This is <laughs> it's Bernadette Lafont. Come on. This is, I was quite disappointed. And then suddenly I realized, oh, she's an evil maid. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it was, well, they used, they, they wanted her <laughs> to be the evil lady again. So uh, it was a, uh, 
it was it was great. It was she was kind of stealing the uh, some scene with her dialogue, a bit like Vincent Price would do with any scene. He will uh, steal the scene, but that's a great equivalency. The, yeah, uh, Angelica Houston, she's as well a little bit of a uh, are you call that royalty in Hollywood. She was the girlfriend uh, mm-hmm. of Jack Nicholson. They were not married, but they were together for twenty five years or something. Jack Nicholson is a bit of a bad boy, so I wouldn't. I I, <laughs> I would think that Angelica Houston um, was uh, his match, um, and then and he she's left. The daughter of the the ultimate bad boy right the daughter of uh, john houston that was a exactly. bad boy hollywood director <laughs> indeed and then she herself of course has this reputation of being like tough as nails you yeah. don't mess with angelica houston and she's got that history of playing villains for a really long time and uh, you know i mean she's she's morticia adams like that's the ultimate exactly. kind of uh badass you don't mess with um, amazing icon, icon but she's a very right? sweet lady at the same time she's just having fun exactly. playing the villain like i would again i would say vincent price what a gentleman, what an amazing gentleman yeah. who loves the art and painting. And Jill Gauston, she's full of, you know, she likes the art, she likes everything. So it was a perfect, perfect, clever match. I wouldn't have thought of it, but now it makes sense. After I mm-hmm. watched the clips and I said, oh, yeah, okay, good. Angelica Houston, they were lucky to get her. Now, I won't ask you to weigh in on this, Luke, but we do have a thing on this on this uh, podcast, specifically run by me, where it's like often voice actors are voice actors, celebrity actors are celebrity actors. But I feel like Angelica Houston is one of the few people that can straddle that line where her voice is distinctive and she has enough control of it that she is a phenomenal voice actress and it works in this role. You believe when she's evil, you believe when she's subservient, like she actually brings a character to the role as opposed to just talking, which a lot of celebrity actors think voice acting is. Waited a little too long to get your voice back, didn't you? Silly girl. Yeah, they just walked around and said, oh, yeah, how, how much are you paying me? Oh, yeah, uh, after, after their work, I'll do that. Blah, 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 yeah. blah. Done. You don't want that. You want a performance. But I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had the, the honor to work with a few actors. Uh, and usually all of them, they really want to make the best performance possible. And you should always allow them the, the space and the opportunity to actually do the best performance that they could. So it's just a... Um, it's just obvious, you know, every actor just want to do the best. They want to have fun. And if you make it fun for them, they will have too much fun and they will do it. Yes, mm-hmm. celebrity sometimes just wondering why that person is doing that voice. It would have been better. But anyway, so it's easy to say that. Sometimes I could imagine that I'd be, I'll be jumping on the uh, opportunity to work with Angelica Houston. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> she's crossed. allowed. We'll check yeah. that box for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I spent a day with Ben Kingsley uh, and he was uh, doing the voice and it was brilliant. It was really nice. Mm. He tested me the first two minutes. He did, he did the voice in a certain way and I was like, hmm, that's not very good. So, uh, sorry, Mr. Kingsley. He's, yes. Um, the character is <laughs> doing this and this and this. And um, he would need to, you know, to breathe heavily because he's going, oh, you mean like that? And then he give me this, okay, Oscar performance. We're okay. We're fine. But he just, I think he just needed a, a little bit of direction. And then after that, you just, please, they want to do better. They'll do a line, they'll stop. And they redo the line to make it better. Ben Affleck on Joseph, the King of Dreams, really worked really hard. He was mm-hmm. never happy with his line. I just, I didn't have that much to do. Maybe three or four times I said, uh, this line means this. When they know the, um, I would call that, that um, 
famous like the context, not the context yeah. it's the um the the meaning behind Motivation. the line oh, oh, the, the subtext, subtext yeah. exactly when they know the subtext mm -hmm. they love it they say you say the line you say i just want to have you know a big mac with uh cheeseburger if there's a subtext to that line that line becomes priceless well, you have to give them the subtext and then you're way they're going to give you great performance sorry i'm over excited <laughs> no, this is, no great. this is great now it's going into uh bernadette lafont and obviously these little like easter eggs for people who would know who she was and what they're watching there's a lot of other references in here to lots of french new wave films uh bob the gambler there's some references uh lift to the scaffold that's all sitting in elevator here. To oh, lots of 50s. lift to the scaffold or elevator to the gallows both. Okay. Got it. There we go. There we go. Um, it's, all, it's, it's all the translation. But but that, that's all in there, as well as, and we're going to be talking about him later, some Monsieur Hulot, as well as some Tati mm -hmm. is in here as well. One of the code names is M. Hulot. So obviously, you know, you've got that reference going on here. Um, what did you guys see in there that sort of elevated your experience from that French New Wave? For me, it was the soundtrack. The score is, and the reason I bring up Elevator to the Gallows, which is a very famous film starring Jean Moreau and has um, uh, a score by, I believe, oh my God, I'm blanking. It's not Miles Davis. It's, um, it's I think, Miles Davis. It's Miles Davis. It is Miles Davis. It, it is, is Miles Davis. Davis. One of the best soundtrack in the world. He actually improvised uh, on, on the spot looking at the film and famously... Uh, the, the the skin of his lips got stuck in the trumpet, making a little <laughs> vibrato that it's yeah. not, re, 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 uh, you can't re reproduce now because of that little thing. But sorry, Alicia, go for it. It's okay. I've, everyone should run and see Elevator to the Gallows. It's one of the iconic French noirs. And watching this, A Cat in Paris, I realized that Serge Bessette score is sort of, I don't know if it's improvised, it probably isn't, but it's it's recalling the best of late 50s, early 60s French noir jazz in that way that the French New Wave did so well taking American musicians, importing them into French film, and somehow making it even more iconically American than when the Americans do it in their own films. Um, and the score on this is is stunning. Like it really complements this the noir elements it complements the Paris at night I mean what a great setting Paris on the rooftops at midnight uh, and I feel like in 2010 we had so many films Hollywood and otherwise set in Paris um, there was a real love affair with Paris in 2010 that this film is definitely a part of so for me it was the music that brought back you know the nouvelle vague even more so than film technique the beauty of of the um the animation in in europe uh all of europe is considered like a high high hand heart and adult will go see an animated film it doesn't mean it's for kids yeah. it's for everybody yeah. in america it's the minute it's animation it's considered just for kids it's not taken seriously. Uh, at the Oscar and the last Oscar, it was the greatest insult everybody could get. Yeah, where the trio of actresses that were announcing the best animated feature category opened with the phrase, uh, animation is something that kids enjoy and adults endure. And basically everyone was like, are you kidding me? For everybody in animation who are adult working in animation who wants to do serious film, the thing is just like, it's not understood clearly and it's not promoted as a high-end mm -hmm. art form. And the film, uh, Une Vie de Chat, A Cat in Paris, 
is high-end art form. They're working really hard to create this thing. They got the kid in the story to, uh, to uh, the family audience to come together to see the film. But it's more about the adult than the little kid, uh, the relationship, the kid with the cat. Yeah, I lived three years in Paris um, and uh, I work and live in Paris for three years and it was brilliant. And the thing is, this a magical city and it's a... Uh, it's, it's really a place that everybody wants to film there, makes their own Paris, but we can draw it. We can draw it in the style we want. Mm-hmm. We can make an homage to it like it was done in that film. And it makes the drawing enhance the look of Paris. Um, I think it's, mm-hmm. uh, we can, we, we'll talk about that in The Illusionist as well, the enhance of the look of the city. Yeah. I love the way this movie moves. I love the way it slinks like a cat and then gets very blocky and chunky when you're with the uh, when you're with the gangsters. When people are talking about animation being for kids, they're talking about a lot of the, if you will, run of the mill stuff that people would just kind of throw out that you would be like, oh, I'm getting this out of the two dollar bin. And and there's not a lot of care and attention to love, even though I'm sure people put put it into it. But you see something like this and you're like, this is an art form. This is something that's the next level that kids could enjoy this. There's some difficult concepts, but it's definitely for everybody it's a good broad spectrum of stuff it's it's great film it really and of course animation is anime and manga film are being taken a little bit more seriously and people uh, adult will start to look at them mm-hmm. in europe people go and see these films and they're misunderstood when they come to uh north america I don't know about South America, but in North America, they are misunderstood, but they're, they're popular in Asia and especially in Japan because Japan love drawings and anything that yeah. emulates a different style than manga, anything that's drawing, they love it too. People being uh, approach uh, younger to see animation and then they grow old and they will want to still see animation. Um, I think it's like comic book people. Adults sometimes have problem reading comic book because they did not read comic book when they were a kid and they have a problem with following the the mm-hmm. the different panels. panel and which order to read them. And I'm always surprised when that happened. But when you read them when you're a kid, it's second nature when you read them in uh in uh in your li- adult life. Uh, like I do, like you see all these books, the collection of millions <laughs> of books of uh, I have 12, 14 different uh, bibliotheque full of comic books. But that's my disease. It's it's <laughs> interesting. It's interesting when we talk about North America, because I always think of Canada as so se- separate from the U.S. in terms of animation, because our entire mm-hmm. film industry in some ways originated with the NFB and artists like Norman McLaren and some of the earliest international recognition that the Canadian film industry got was for animation. And still, I would say to this day, whether it's Madame Tootley Pootley or most of her Oscar nominations are, let's face it, going to be NFB mostly funded animation. And yet something happens where we're just subsumed by American culture and we forget that Canadian history in animation and we forget that adult animation has existed in Canada since its inception of the uh-huh. medium. Even, you know, if you look at the U.S., like some of the greatest animators started working on Sesame Street. Um, animators, puppeteers, you know, whether it's Jim Henson, whether it's, you know, very famous animators um, were in the 60s and 70s doing those short interstitial animations. And in a very abstract way, it was not Disney animation whatsoever. So something happens. We grow up and we forget 
how important animation is and we forget how many films we watched as kids that were far too adult for us that were animated. This one might fall into that category. I could see this scaring, you know, someone a little too young to want to, you know, we have a lot of death in animation, Disney or otherwise. This is a full-blown, like, a guy's been murdered and his daughter stops talking. Like, it's quite dark. Yeah, Absolutely right. The Canadians, I think the Canadians are really bad at remembering their history. And and uh, yes. <laughs> that too. And, this podcast and, has proved that. <laughs> and the NFB, the NFB is exceptional around the world. I, I mean, I worked in yes. in England fifteen years. I worked in Paris three years. I worked in in Germany and Budapest. Uh, you work in these places, and the minute you say Canadian, people in the animation industry will turn around and say NFB. Or ONF. As we transition into the next film, I just want to address this for a second because we've talked a lot about how uh, European animation is different from American animation, but European animation also works a lot in collaboration with various European nations. It's how the funding has to work and how they get money. Lots of co-pros. What do you think of wor- working within that? Do you think the co-pro model is actually more beneficial than having a single source? I'm, I'm supposed to answer to that, Alicia? Yes. Okay. Please. Uh, the like, co-pro what is, is, is a uh, necessary evil. Necessary evil is that the word. Yeah. Co-pro is a necessary evil, unfortunately, um, because every every different government body, Belgium, Swiss, Luxembourg, uh, Spain, Portugal, all these government bodies have, uh, have a certain amount allocated to do animation production. But sometimes there's projects that are really exciting, but they don't have enough money. So they'll they'll team with Luxembourg and Belgium and Switzerland and Spain and Italy and so and you don't have if they speak a romantic language, they're yeah, in. Yes. Gotcha. And then and then <laughs> you don't have the much choice because the budget needs to be a certain level. Of course, we're not talking about 160 million for a Pixar film. We're talking about, oh, we have a problem. The film is eight million dollars. It's too much. We're never gonna be able to raise the money. It's a complete different level. I, I worked in Denmark and they have uh, the Skin, Scandinavian country are, are together for uh, pulling mm-hmm. their resources. So you have Denmark, Sweden and Norway and Finland. They're together. And what's happening is that they're doing an animated film a year. So what mm-hmm. happened is that year it's for uh, Denmark. The following year, it's from Norway. The following year is from Sweden. And every country will participate. So it's like it's a poll. And then they're doing, they're touring around. If they manage to do a film with a little bit more money, sometimes they did an Asterix, uh, Asterix and the Viking, who's (laughs) probably one of the best Asterix animated drawing film that never, ever been done. was done in Denmark. And this one was, you know, there was GOMO money, there was uh, money from Germany, there was money from all these Scandinavians. So that year there was two films coming out, another film from, uh, but those films, they they're don't travel that well because they stay in a Scandinavian world and in Germany as well. And uh, sometimes they play in France, um, but the talent there, there is in, in the Scandinavian countries and they're amazing, really mm-hmm. good. So the COPO is a necessary evil. Sometimes it's so great to have uh, a body, uh, you know, who has enough money, a government body or a, an entity who has enough money who just show up and say, hey, here's, uh, I like your project. Here's the whole money. Let's get the film done. And this is magic. Oh, my God. You know, uh, I just need eight millions, 10 millions compared to Hollywood. This is nothing. 
it's really nothing. But in Hollywood now, those films are uh, the bad budget is 160 million. They all prefer 200 million. And this is like, it's nearly indecent. Um, but in Europe, you know, people manage to earn a living, live a life, eat great food, drink fantastic wine, as <laughs> they're doing the film. Um, and the budget is only 8 million. But when I say only, it's so relative for a lot of people. $8 million is an amazing amount of money. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's... Mm. Well, so, it's Canadians. I mean, you see Canada... You know, it'll be a lot of European countries, you're right, Becky, but often Canada's at the bottom. And if we're going to talk about Sylvain mm -hmm. Chaumet in a minute, Triplets of Belleville is a Canadian co-pro. Like, that was a yeah. really mm -hmm. big deal for Canada. And what was great about that, at least, is there was a government mandate and an absolute um, must that it got distributed theatrically in Canada because it was a Canadian, partially Canadian film. And I don't know if I would have been able to see the Triplets of Belleville at a movie theater in the small town that I lived in if it didn't have Canada as one of the countries of origin. Uh -huh. That is a perfect time <laughs> for us to move into our next film, which we're going to be talking about The Illusionist, which also had some funding issues. We're going to get into that after the break. Our second film today was never intended to be an animated film at all, but instead a live-action semi-autobiographical film made by a father with his daughter. Well, that didn't happen. Instead, The Illusionist, or L'Illusionniste, became the follow-up feature to Sylvain Chalmé's Oscar-nominated The Triplets of Belleville, or Les Triplets de Belleville. Sylvain's films are visually distinctive, featuring characters that range from the gorgeous to the grotesque, and they also utilize sound in a fascinating way. Also Oscar-nominated, The Illusionist lost out to the flashier Toy Story 3. But there's a lot to love in this quiet story, and a lot of controversies, too. Luke, can you lead us through the plot of this one? Oh, the plot of The Illusionist. We're not talking about the the Christopher Nolan film. We're talking we about Sylvain Schumann film. <laughs> Correct. Completely different thing. <laughs> it always comes up first in the search when you put illusionist in. It's yeah, yeah, always yeah. the no, 2006. Like, uh, yes, yeah. illusionist animated film. So um, it's Jacques Tati, who's, uh, if people don't know who is Jacques Tati, I could say he's a kind of a Charlie Chaplin of the history of cinema in France. Uh, there's Charles Linder in the uh, in the silent era, uh, who was the Charlie Chaplin. But let's call it, he was the new modern Charlie Chaplin of France. And Jacques Tati did a script with his daughter. Uh, no, not with his daughter, but about his daughter. Uh, and the story is basically, it's a kind of a me mediocre ma magician but I, as in the film we see his really skill actually but um he's a, mm. a, a fail the word fail is not right but the out of touch out of touch out of touch uh, ma magician so he's an out of touch magician and we see his career uh slowly going down from a venue in paris to a venue in london then to suddenly a venue in an obscure island in the very north of Scotland. So we see him traveling from Paris to London and then to this obscure island where he will be living in a inn. It's a pub mixed with a, uh, a kind of an auberge. And there, there's a, this very young girl who's uh, cleaning up uh, her, his room. And with that, there's a kind of friendship that is being strike. And 
he's just okay about it, and then he leaves the uh, the little town to go to Edinburgh to maybe having some you know uh, show he can do there in that uh, in the beautiful uh, capital of Scotland, Edinburgh. When when he goes there, he's being followed by the young girl who was cleaning up the room. And they end up in the same room and he's helping her to adapt to her new life. She wants to quit the island and be a girl about town, basically. <laughs> and as things are going, he's giving her uh, lots of gifts and he is uh, paying for her staying in the room and so on. And then this, uh, this slowly, all his life is falling apart. He's not getting the gig and he's all his show falling down. So he has to find other jobs to pay, to help her to stay afloat. Um, so having to, uh, her boarding. And then maybe he's starting to believe that he could be close to her, very close. But then like any father, um, she will meet another guy and then she will mm-hmm. leave him as he will Carry on is failing career. Bittersweet is really the only word for this film. I mean, it there's is a, there's a hanging, a failed hanging that occurs in this. Like it has yeah. a really serious depiction of suicide that I had forgotten about. I mean, we put a dis- this film is on Hollywood Suite. We love it on Hollywood Suite, and we put a disclaimer on it as we do for a lot of our depictions of self harm because this one is graphic and it's animated. <laughs> that's bittersweet. It's, that's like that's just bitter. But it's a love story about illustration yeah. and drawing. This is the drawing and the illustration and the art direction of this film is breathtaking. It's one it of is. the most beautiful animated film you could yes. ever see. It's really unbelievable. But the story is, is coming straight from Jacques Tati. So Jacques Tati did a script in, uh, in the 60s uh, or early 70s about that story. And that script didn't, didn't go anywhere. So it was not produced. And uh, Sylvain Chaumet managed to connect with the daughter of, of Jacques Tati, and they managed to get it off the ground. But it's not the first time, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Patrice Leconte, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the director of the hair, hairdresser husband, end up with uh, spending about a few months with uh, Jacques Tati in the early 70s. And they worked on a script about Jacques Tati being stuck on TV. So it's a script laughing about the TV world and the whole film was was script and that film never happened. Never been, you know, they never got the money to make it. And the problem is Jacques Tati was a perfectionist. So he would do everything to make sure that all was, the timing was perfect about everything and then it will repeat so on and so on, the uh, the take to make sure that the timing will work. And the problem was that it takes after takes after takes. When it's three days you work on the same takes, it costs too much money. Mm-hmm. So Jacques Tati is, is a little bit difficult to finance um, his film. Uh, he did only six or seven films. I think right now we have, um, we have Playtime on Hollywood Suite, which Playtime is in the early 70s. If you're exactly what you're describing, Luke, like if you can watch Playtime, which is this almost mechanical ballet where you have hundreds mm-hmm. of people in one shot and Tati's this master of if one person doesn't move the right way, it's going to ruin the entire take. And so when you watch the, and these scenes with cars, which are phenomenal, um, 
which is also in traffic, of course. But uh, yeah, you've got it. We definitely check out Playtime if you're looking for, because there's a Monsieur Hulot character that appears in the 50s and very Chaplin-esque, like you're saying. But when you go into his career further into the 70s, that's where he becomes like an almost Michael Cimino, a Terrence Malick-esque perfectionist. And that ruins exactly. his career. <laughs> so <laughs> unfortunately, because the, fi- the film of uh, Jacques Tati are not passive viewing they're active viewing you have to sit mm-hmm. down and look at it and follow and get what you want out of it and mm-hmm. and it it's in general people like to go to the cinema and have a, a passive viewing they see the superhero running around and bumping people and it's oh my god it's so so and much flash the camera will tell you where to look whereas <laughs> yes. here you have to actively look for because they're they're yeah. uh, tableaus almost tableau. of all these like different that's moving a great parts point. yeah that's a great point it's like yeah. a vaudeville act. The camera's always far away. It's like a vaudeville act. And the problem mm. with that is that the the audience is not you don't you don't cut to close up. So you're mm-hmm. uh, you have to be more active. And when you have close up, is to indicate how you're supposed to feel, uh, how you're supposed to doubt or whatever the. Uh, so, but there's no the camera's always far away. So animation is a very interesting way of getting Jacques Tati back to life. And making those tableau, who's very on animation, animation to save time, you cut to close up. And then the close up is only one character to draw, it's easier. But in Jacques mm-hmm. Tati, it's many characters to draw all the time at the same time. It's very tricky, but it's a nice adaptation. It's a bit, a bit like documentary. Documentary mm-hmm. and animation starting to mm-hmm. become very friendly lately because documentary realized that the footage they're missing. The thing that it doesn't exist in the archive, they can create the material yes. they need for the documentary. So that's a bit the same idea. It's happening in the uh, in the late 50s. Jacques Tati goes from Paris of 1959, then back to London 1959. All the cars, all the surrounding are perfectly drawn. The, 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 mm. the mechanics, the cars and everything is unbelievably well crafted and then he goes to a small island and the 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 mist goes around the island and it's just like oh it's so gorgeous really take your breath away that visually it's exceptional but still it's not a passive viewing you need to go and get closer and the the weird thing in 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 that film he did two shots that were not general shots but they were uh mid mid shots so it's about Mid-shot is about the, the belt to the head. And at two moments, when he mm-hmm. checked the price to get to the restaurant, and when he has a problem uh, buying some uh, some sausages in, in sausages, a shop. Sausages, yeah. yeah. Yes. So there's the two shots that are mid-shots. The rest, it's only far, far away. And I would have, when he, me personally, if you want to make an impact, you make the whole film always far away, a bit like a chaplain. And then when you need a, a um, an impact, especially when you realize that you have to let go, that young girl, she find the guy and she's going to go and have a life. A close-up there would have been brilliant. Chaplin will, would do it um, and you would have created the emotion. But the two moments where you get closer are not having money to go to the restaurant and not having money to buy uh, to buy your sausages. 
Is that a, a comment about not enough money to do your animation film? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting we bring up Tati, and obviously Shamay uh, has a direct like love of and an imitation of that. So not only in this film, but all the way to his original Oscar-winning short, uh, The Old Lady and the Pigeon, almost no dialogue. Everything is silent using music and sound effects, which is a very Tati thing. Lots of caricatures and characters. Uh, but what he does is he creates these architectures types of these human beings that you instantly see as recognizable. Yeah. And one of the big things that he does that happens in playtime is that he follows this group of tourists around who may or may not be American. And Man Chomet does not like American tourists. All of his... It's so mean. That's the one. <laughs> but it's, it's vicious. Accurate. I mean, I, I loved it. I had never seen it and came up in our research for this podcast. And it's, it's on YouTube, the whole thing. Um, really fascinating. It's 1997, so um, Triplets of Belleville's 2003, so that's an incredible trajectory to just within five years go from your Oscar-winning short to your Cannes Film Festival programmed feature film that's a short, in animation, that's a short five years. Usually that would take 10 to 15. I, I mean, I'm assuming, like, I just know how much labor goes into that, but uh, that short's fantastically wicked. It's really great. On top of that, you have Monsieur Hulot, who, of course, was his character, and that he is illustrated in The Illusionist. The main character is illustrated as Jacques Tati, as that character. So there's homages happening all the time. He's got the socks. He's got the, the way he looks. The He does this particular lean when he's interested in things, mm-hmm. that he sort of bends forward at the waist and then tilts his head slightly to the side like a puppy does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, it's it's a very specific way that it's animated that you also see when he's in that character. This is also extremely controversial in a number of ways. I'm going to get into this so that people can kind of make up their own minds. I need to be clear. I love this movie. It is a masterpiece. It's absolutely too. stunning. But <laughs> that having been said, here's where it gets complicated. Okay, so what you need to know is that there are two daughters here that the story is allegedly about. There is Sophie Tadischeff, who was Tati's publicly acknowledged daughter, and then there was Helga Marie Jean Chille. Uh, we're going to get to her in a moment because that's where it starts to get complicated. Now, Chomet was allegedly sent the script by Sophie Tadischeff, who said, I really love your work. I feel like what you do is very similar to what my dad would do. What can you do with this screenplay? So that's allegedly what Chomet says happened. There is, of course, no record of them ever having met. Um, Chomet even says he never met her. And then she dies, like, within 18 months of this exchange. Yeah, exactly. And then she promptly passes away. From my understanding, uh, he pays for the rights, so this is technically all his. Where this starts to get complicated is that the second family, so Helga Marie-Jean Chille, was Taddy Chef's daughter from an illicit affair um, that he had had with a uh, vaudeville performer when he was younger. He was already married, and he abandoned this woman and her daughter to the point where the daughter was in an extreme situation in Morocco and could have been killed and he wouldn't do anything to help her. So he had a lot of regrets about his relationship with her. What it comes down to is that the story isn't about Sophie. The story is about Helga and his regrets at the end of his life about the way he treated her. And the movie is about her. Mm -hmm. Also, at no point does the film ever acknowledge her or her name. And so if this was intended to be a love letter and an apology to her at some point in the movie, or somewhere in the credits, it should acknowledge her and it never does. 
Now, this came to light from someone who identified themselves as Richard Tatischeff Sheil McDonald, uh, who claims he was the middle grandson of Tati. Uh, he was upset and angry about the film because uh, he claimed that Tati never intended for the film to be made. As Alicia mentioned, he was such a perfectionist that, number one, he never wanted to see himself represent himself on film. He actually had one of his friends and associates he was going to put in the role in a live action role. And he just never made the movie. And if he was going to make the movie, he would have made the movie. So the grandson basically says, Sophie had no right to give this movie away anyway. He wrote an extensive letter that details exactly what the situation was between his mother Helga and uh, Tati. And so if you want to read that, you can, because it was posted by Ebert. Now, Ebert also gave this movie a four-star review because it is a masterpiece. He did also publish this letter side by side to basically say this is what's going on. Noted critic Jonathan Rosenbaum also wrote an article uh, titled Why I Can't Write About the Illusionist, which discusses his situation, the moral quandary therein. So really what the controversy comes down to is that there are a number of people that do not believe it was ethical for Chomet to make this, regardless of how he came across the screenplay, which was also uh, under a bit of a veil of suspicion. Anybody around the world, uh, you know, somebody will sit and look at the movie and won't know anything about this. They'll just yeah. see the movie exactly. as the movie. Yeah. They'll look at, and, and many people don't know who Jacques Tati is. Um, they will say this weird, interesting character who moves strangely. and uh, But it is an, an enormous homage to Jacques Tati. The, all the acting of the character, specifically the illusionist, is really done in a specific way of following. They probably look at a lot of footage of Jacques Tati uh, a, acting in his film, and they, they recreated as much as possible his acting, like people might do that Chaplin in animation or Laurel and Hardy in animation. You know, mm -hmm. they became a typical style of movement and they, they, they copy it really nicely. Mr. Chomet has not an amazing reputation and that probably doesn't help. Um, there is mm -hmm. ambiguity. Every time that you, you do something, usually you should be very worried about, you know, whatever the material is coming from and how it make it the... Uh, he adapted something from something. It's written uh, the, in the critics, he adapt. Anybody adapt, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese or Glenn Keane. Um, Glenn Keane is an animator at Disney uh, or um, an animator at Pixar. They will have an idea and then they'll adapt it for the film because it's a visual art. Animation has mm -hmm. to be presented in certain ways so we understand um, that specific animation, any film. A certain way so the story is stronger and then we we can relate to this one the camera is always away like a tatty film so and it's true that Chomet tends to do that in Triple de Belleville and uh, two films who were actually animated in Montreal oh I didn't realize mm -hmm. that that's the oh, Canadian yeah. side yeah that makes sense Triple de Belleville Chomet lived in Montreal at least five years minimum if mm. it's not more and um, so Belleville is partially Montreal like that's what it's based on yeah yes so uh, those two films were animated in Montreal. And there was a lot of talent in Montreal who worked yeah, on it. Yeah. And and after that, he moved uh, his production for getting the uh, that film. He had to find other people because the people in Montreal didn't want to work with him anymore. That's what I've been told. I never met yeah. the, the, the guy. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> Probably for the best. <laughs> 
But reputations follow people. And I mean, this is not the only person we've heard about uh, needing to find different people, different collaborators because they've burned some bridges. So, I mean, it's kind of it's 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 a thing people do. It's business. But no, filmmaking, animation or otherwise uh, documentary is film and film is teamwork. And teamwork, mm -hmm. it's to get along with your team, to get the best out of every level of your team. And, and when you manage to get your team to get along, you will get a film that get along more. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, there's a famous, uh, je suis un auteur, uh, I am the author of the film. Um, yeah completely dismissed by America and Hollywood, uh, completely embraced by France, mm -hmm. probably tourism, yeah. the real answer is something in between. And, mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't excuse to anybody who's doing a film uh, not to be a nice person with your team. But anyway, we don't know. I never met that guy, that 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 gentleman, and maybe uh, it would be uh, it would be lovely, and and the bottle of wine will flow, and <laughs> and the cheese and the, the the cheese with the baguette will do right. I don't know. Uh, yeah. but I don't sure know. I uh, his career. If you look at just his filmography, to have the enormous successes of Triplets of Belleville and The Illusionist. And then he does a live action film in 2013, which I saw at TIFF called um, Attila Marcel. It does not yes. get received very well, unfortunately. It turns out that mm -hmm. Chomet animation style translated to live action, to, for, to my eyes at least, and I don't think this film has been picked up by critics since, does not work. And then there's a period. <laughs> that's it. Like, that's, that is the end. It seems like, unless something's in the works now, which I'm not seeing any evidence of, Chomet has is done is finished making films um he teaches so, a bit so uh, let's let's embrace the film and forget about the filmmaker yeah uh, exactly <laughs> art versus the artist in this well, one. when we do when we do any film when we look at any film we just see the film by itself this film yeah. telling us a story you're not going to stop the film the filmmaker is not going to stop the film say hey look at that detail the animation of that character is we did it and he works like that in doing this and i was thinking of Nobody's going to, you just look at the film. The film exactly. should have his own voice. And it's important when you create the film with your team that that own voice will go up. I think the illusionist, what he's trying to set was doing a film of Tati without Jack Tati, but as much as possible yes. close to Tati. The animation helped create that. And it mm -hmm. is, it is a, such a beautiful film to look at. Such a beautiful mm -hmm. film. It almost is like looking at a painting. And mm -hmm. it's a movie also that makes me regret the loss of more 2D films. Because I can't imagine this movie being 3D. I can't imagine not having all those textures from the brush strokes and the pencils and just the, the extra layer of, of humanity and heart that comes through the artistry of this that I can't imagine in CGI. No. This could not be CGI. That would be a disaster. I completely agree with Alicia. <laughs> God help anyone trying to remake this in CGI or try to make a tati <laughs> in CGI. You need to get yourself checked out. But the animation drawing done in 2D, the animation drawing that embraced the drawing is so important. But the thing is, is that when you do a, a film, you, you want the film to be distributed. You want the film to be seen. If any any filmmaker, they want the film to be seen by people, and it's available, and then people talk about it, and they 
and they're being touched so much that they will say to a friend, you know, Becky, you should look at that film. This is a really lovely film. Alicia, have you seen this film? This film is amazing. Like uh, the cat's eyes. Oh, that's, you have to see this film. <laughs> Angst, Angst noir film. <laughs> We live for that. I mean, that's that's why we have a podcast. And uh... with that having been said, we should probably end this episode with how people can find more of your work, Luke. Can you remind me, Seth's Dominion, it's on NFB, right? You can watch it right now for free, is my understanding. Um, I think it's not for free, but it is available as part of the catalog. It's one of the very popular film that NFB did. I think I have the honor to bring back profit to the NFB. Uh, I'm one of the few. <laughs> it <laughs> so only took 73 to years. <laughs> you can, uh, I don't have it here. There's a lovely, there's an absolutely lovely uh, book DVD, uh, artist book DVD done by Seth, called Seth's Dominion. And it's a, it's a book with lots of illustration and photography for the, from the film. The book opens mm-hmm. like an accordion and you have the DVD oh. inside. So okay. that's available uh, at the Drawing Quarterly or Amazon, ah, okay. I would say. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful okay. objet d'art, <laughs> but you can yeah. see uh, uh, sagacity. It's a documentary about how to live uh, greener in the city. Um, hmm. I won. I don't. Re- I think it's five international prize for, and it's the subject of today. It's been done ten years ago, mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. it's you know global warming and how you should be using your city and and um, so that's a good one. I love the short apology of Albert Batch. If I can just say it's delightful. It's not an anime. It's not an animation. It's a puppet show, but it's it's, it's really lovely. The Apology of Albert, that's the full version of the puppet show, will be available uh, on the next Palookaville books from set. I think it's mm-hmm. around Christmas time or just after. Uh, so you'll have the whole play. It's a, a half hour play, a puppet play, and it's about a comic book artist called Albert Batch. And Seth is moving the puppet around and telling the story of Albert with illustration and so on. And this will be available again as a book uh, our book with the DVD or Blu-ray inside it. This is uh, still, mm-hmm. we just managed to finance it last week. So you will see it around Christmas or just after That's that. Wonderful. The next book of set, check it out. You'll have a, another film. This one, oh, there's animation in the, in the, uh, in the credits, but the rest is a live action uh, puppet uh, show. Um, <laughs> and if everything's all right, I will do my own film noir and animation happening in Paris in 1956. Oh, Yay! whoa. That's very on Feature film okay. coming up. Wow. <laughs> my next feature film, expect- if everything goes all right. Yeah, it's happening. We will all cross our fingers for you, Luke. <laughs> we will look forward to it. You, of course, will have to keep us posted on developments. Uh, Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's so lovely to meet you, Luke, and talk to an expert in the field and, you know, I, we're lovers of animation, but it, it brings so much more depth when there's someone who lives and breathes it. So I really appreciate it. You're you're very kind not using the word a nerd, but that's what I am. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Luke. It was such a pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you very okay. much. Yeah. All right. And you can join us in two weeks where we're going to get steamy again. It's Burlesque and Electrolux, and we're going to be joined by the dazzling Laura Desiree. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free. 
Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Alicia Fletcher and Luke Chamberlain as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.